Welcome to an industry in transition, the must listen to podcast for financial advisors and industry leaders from Tony Siriani, the CEO and publisher of Advisor Hub, where we explore the week's news and events and put our ever-changing business into perspective. Tony is joined each week by industry leaders, mavericks, and disruptors who give their take on our industry and their thoughts on where we are headed. If you want to remain relevant, you can't miss it. Now, here's your host, Tony Siriani. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Industry and Transition Zoomcast. I'm Tony Siriani, and I am thrilled to have Paul Dietrich and Art Hogan from B. Riley Financial with us. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. You know, uh, the truth is, if I had either one of your hair, I'd be president of the United States today. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be held back because of that. Just I want to start off like that. Um, look, it's a uh, we're, we're, I'm glad you're here because, uh, you know, we're, we're there, as always, there's change in the air. It's a, it's a volatile, you know, time. Uh, I, I think advisors understand this buy and hold, you know, strategy. I think statistically, statistically, you look at things, and and clients are still better served when they work with an advisor because he's telling them to stay the course. So, all of the work that went ten, that we did ten years ago around a kitchen table is helping us today, right? As we sit around with our clients and try to figure it out, it doesn't make it any less, you know, scary. So I would like to look at kind of where you think we're going, uh, you know, and, and maybe some tactical ideas as to as to you know what we should be doing. So let's agree that our guys are going to stay the course. Let's agree that they're talking people off a ledge. They know how to do that. Well, what can we do? And then kind of what what you see as what's next. So. Um, Let's start with you, Paul, since you and I kind of have talked about this a little bit, and then we'll get Art's point of view. Well, I, uh, I, I take a little bit different point of view. Um, I am, uh, uh, I believe in passive investing during long-term bull markets, like we've had pretty much for the last 13 years uh, since the 2008-2009 recession. Uh, but I do believe in in putting on a defensive investment strategy for clients when we're going into a long-term uh, bear market recession, which I believe we're, we're going into. And these things usually last anywhere from nine to 18 months uh, historically. And, uh, and I think that clients want to see their advisors aware of, of, of the markets uh, and that the markets are going down and doing something uh, that is defensive, that's gonna protect uh, their, their capital preservation, let's say, uh, during these times. There are only two, two cycles in the stock market. Uh, there's long-term bull markets, and then there's shorter um, uh, bear market recessions. And I think you have to act appropriately uh, to, to the markets that you're in. And uh, I've done this through uh, the 2001, 2002 recession, 2008, 2009. And uh, by going defensive, uh, it's been a big benefit to uh, my so, clients. So, so Paul, I, I, I mean, uh, Art, I do know that Paul made some good calls on some of these you know, bear markets using his you know, indicators approach. Uh, what about a tactical, you know, uh, plan for that, that use as you see fit, you know? Yeah, such a great question. And, and Paul's right. You know, we're obviously coming into a period of time where we're going to have slower economic growth. Earnings are going to be uh, um, challenged. We're entering the third quarter earnings reporting season. And, 
and estimates for that have gone from about 9.8% to 2.6%. So a lot of that's priced in. I think what you need to know as an advisor is what's the history of a, of a, a bear market? And we've had 10, the last 10, the average drawdown in the S&P 500 was between 30 and 35%. And then you have to say to yourself, how much have we already seen of that average drawdown? And the S&P 500 comes in today down 25%. So when you, when you look at it that way, I think there's less draconian things you want to do. Now, would I say you want to be more focused on companies that have earnings in the growth bucket of your portfolio? Yes. Do you want to shy away from those companies that are measured on a price to sales or a price to revenue basis? Absolutely. That's, that's already happened in front of us. A lot of those pandemic darlings are down some 70 or 80%. That was a mistake. There were, there were a lot of fun to watch, you know, a Peloton go to 300 all the way back to, to $10. But the, the, you really need to focus on the fundamentals and see so, price earnings. So here, you know, in this market, again, not not being the expert, but this uh, this is different because of, of, of inflation. I mean, you know, right, Paul? I mean, this is a, we haven't had this for a while. So, I mean, we get, we've had this weird one in 2000. We had the 2010 Great Recession. This is, this is, this has got, for a lot of us, a scary component, which is the inflation. Well, we really haven't seen um, inflation uh, in, a, in a recession since really the 60s, 70s, and and uh, and the first two years of, of the 80s. And a lot of advisors simply weren't, weren't working then because it was so long ago. I'm not born. And, yeah, yeah, some of them weren't born. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, I, I've looked at all of these recessions from six, the, the late 60s to, to the 80s, and it seems to me that this is kind of closest to the 1973-1975 uh, period uh, recession that we went through. Uh, it, it, it almost tracks exactly the same, even uh, looking at the markets. And in 73 and 75, the market went down 48%. And I think people uh, remember 2008 and 2009, the market went down peak to trough uh, almost 57%. Uh, in 2001 and 2002, it went down 49%. And I think, um, I don't think this is going to be an average recession. I mean, no recession is exactly the same as anything that's come before. But <clears throat> I think we have the possibility because of worldwide inflation uh, that uh, the Federal Reserve, it can do something, but it can't do everything. It can't control what's going on in China and the rest of the world. Right. And so so you know, be more but, like the 73, 75, which was a global re, uh, recession. So the one thing, Art, that seems to, which is, of course, you know, terrifying. Thanks, Paul. But the thing that's, you know, Art, that, that I'm that I'm seeing here is unlike some others is that uh, employment is holding up because I, I remember the employment lines and stuff like that with Reagan. And, and uh, you know, that was sort of the real real. It was a real sad component of it. Um, how, how do you how, how do you figure employment plays into this? Yeah, that's the conundrum that the Fed has right now, right? So they know that they have to fight inflation and they'd like to see things slow down. And lo and behold, we just got a jobs report and the unemployment rate went from 3.7 to 3.5%. So that tells you if in fact, this Federal Reserve is able to tamp down inflation with higher rates and they'll likely stop at four and a quarter, four and a half, that that the underpinning of strength, which is the labor market, likely is going to be the only time or one of the very few times the Fed has been able to orchestrate that elusive soft landing. So what does that mean? 
but that it means we don't necessarily have to have an aggressive Fed uh, slamming on the brakes and careening us into a, into a recession next year. That's not to say we might not have a short and shallow recession, but I think that when you put together that, that, that juxtaposition of strong and strong labor market and participation rates in the labor market that are still not back to the pre-pandemic levels for a lot of reasons, I think there's a, a potential that the recession that we do go into is going to be short and shallow and that the bear market that we're going to uh, have is going to be much more average, if you will, and uh, and not one of those cataclysmic, you know, down 50% that we've also experienced through the last 10 bear markets. So, Paul, uh, Paul Volcker is casting a huge shadow still here, you know, and and that was a, I can't really curse because B. Riley's going to use this. It, it, was, it was a real show, you know, that back, back then things were really bad. Um, and, uh, but he, he really raised rates and, you know, that's what finally broke the back. And, and you, I've heard you say before that, you know, what the Fed had done with sort of incrementally re raising rates here, raising them there is sort of what prolonged the, the, the debacle in the seventies. So versus what Art said, how do you, how do you feel, you know, where, where should the Fed be on rates to get this thing settled? I, I tend to agree that, you know, we're going to be in the four, four and a half uh, percent rate uh, in uh, in the first quarter. What's going to be interesting, I think, because of the global nature of inflation now, uh, and because of globalization, which we really didn't have in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, so pricing and prices and everything else are are more set globally than, than just here in the United States. Uh, the oil markets, if anybody thinks that that's a free market, they're delusional because, I mean, uh, Biden is pumping uh, a million barrels a day into the strategic uh, 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 reserve system. You've got Russia, you've got OPEC. Uh, there's nothing free market about that. And so all of these things combined and food prices uh, I think are going to continue to go up. Um, and I, I just, I think this is going to be, uh, inflation is going to persist. And I think that in the end, and, and nobody knows, uh, but sometime in the first quarter, second quarter, we're going to know whether they're having any effect on inflation at four, four, four to four and a half percent. And but it's always, but it's always looking backwards, right? I mean, they're always they're always looking in a rearview mirror for this stuff. So, right, yeah, how do you know? You don't, and 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 they're they're playing it by ear each Fed right. meeting. Uh, but if if they haven't really brought down inflation, you know, if inflation is down seven percent uh, at that time, I think they're going to have to raise rates higher. Yeah. So. Um, Art, that's a little different than, than 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 your point of view, you know, on it. Uh, any any thoughts on sort of the, the Volcker-esque kind of, you know, now's the time we're going to make a huge number uh, versus sort of this try to get a soft landing. Yeah, what it is important to, for us to think back to that time that Paul Volcker had to come in, and with inflation now, and 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 really, you're talking about a guy that would go into a meeting on a Saturday and raise the Fed funds rate by two and a half percent. The only time that you and I would find out about it is when. Chase Bank or Manny Haney raised the prime lending rate by two and a half percent. There was no transparency. We had no, and they had one tool. They had the Fed funds rate and controlling the money supply. They literally took the Fed funds rate north of 18% to fight 14% inflation that had been embedded for 15 years and embedded into inflation expectations. Flash forward to today and Chair Powell's got 
uh, a CPI and at, at the seven, seven and a half, eight percent level, you've got a PCE that's at four, four and a half, five percent level, and he's got multiple tools. And I think that it's just a different time. Conflating those two or using the, the makes yeah, it's just it's not it's not the same place in time. Be, well, we we have a we have a little bit of a zero percent hangover though. No, I mean because we were at our rates are so artificially low. So talk about how you think that impacts kind of. Uh, so let's take Volker out of it, even though I hate to do it because he was a scary guy. I think that fixed things, but let, but but now let let's try to deal with the where we're coming from today, which is that you know uh, manipulated zero percent, right? I mean they on purpose and it was kept low for such a long time. I still have a zero percent car, by the way, that I. Yeah, no, I, a lot of people do. And uh, I think, um, I don't think that's going to affect too much in, in the future. But I, I think that one of the things from the 70s that we are going to see uh, again is probably a long period of stagflation. And I agree with Art that the employment situation is probably going to cushion a lot of things because we have effectively about two jobs for every worker uh, in America. And what, what we're going to see is a lot of people think that, you know, I can get through 18 months of recession. So long as I have a job, you know, I can, I can struggle through uh, a recession. But the problem is, is stagflation. And again, for all the reasons I pointed out that this is a global, um, a, you know, a global issue, and you have the Fed raising rates, you have the second largest economy in the world, China, offsetting those higher rates by them lowering their rates. And I just, I, I'm not, I don't believe that they're going to uh, bring down inflation overall as, as much as they think. And, and what that will happen is that we're going to see a lot of people are still going to have jobs, but their cost of living is going to go up because inflation is going to be higher than, you know, the rate of growth, even if we do have a, a small GDP growth during that period. So Art, you know, uh, you, you feel similarly, I, my concerns, I, I worry about China, that seems like a manipulated economy that you can't, you're not getting a straight answer about. And if, you know, we're, we're basing part of what we need to do based on China, that seems scary, you know, to me, as well. Yeah, I would, I would say if, if, if I had the day where I could tell China to do something different, I would I would have them stop their zero COVID policy and try some vaccines and some therapies, because right. that has taken China out of the demand for for uh, global goods and services. And while that has helped a bit in terms of, of um, um, inflation and goods pricing, especially industrial commodities and petroleum product, it's hurt in terms of demand for goods and services from the rest of the world. I think they're slowly coming around to that. And, the, and, and they've got targets for GDP growth that are a lot higher than they're actually seeing in the here and now. So that China likely turns into a positive. But I, in terms of globalization, to, to Paul's point, I think the combination of the trade war we just got through with China and the last administration and the pandemic has proven to most manufacturers that they want their manufacturing closer and safer, right? And we've, we've seen that in things like pharmaceuticals. We're certainly seeing that in autos. We're certainly seeing that in EVs. We're seeing that now in semiconductors. So that whole globalization effect is, is being unwound in front of us. And I think that, you know, while that's going to take two, three, five years to have more onshoring or nearshoring of production, I think that diminishes some of the fears that Paul might have about that sort of globalized economic growth that, that necessarily has to translate into stagflation. 
So what, what, what's the long-term impact of, them, of that then, Art, in, in your mind, uh, in terms, you know, for the United States? I mean, let's say we, we do stagflate, but we've, it sounds to me like if we can build up more infrastructure like that and like, you know, sort of bring home some of the stuff that we, you know, outsource, that, that might be a long-term good at the end of the day. Well, Maybe. it's certainly going to, it's going to be one of the biggest problems we had were supply chains and, and, and how gummed up they got. So when, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, as consumers, typically consumed 65% services and 35% goods. We turned that on its head and then found out how fragile our supply chains were in a global pandemic. I think the lesson learned there was that we need to have safer and closer supply chains. So we don't have that. So likely that becomes, that makes us a, a better place where you can actually buy your new car because the semiconductors are available. You can buy your generic drugs during a pandemic because manufacturing is being shifted to places that are either closer or more friendly to us. So I think it's a long-term positive. And I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a step back in that whole concept of yeah. you know, the globalization that we've seen over the last 25 years. Um, Paul? Yeah, could I, um, I, I agree with Art 100% that we are in the process of a lot of reshoring of manufacturing, and it's going to happen in the next three to five years, but probably, you know, we got a few years before uh, where we will have, I believe, we'll have a recession and uh, uh, before all this happens. But every study that I've read recently, and there have been a number of academic studies on the reshoring, is the reason we went offshore was because it was cheaper. Uh, it's going to be more expensive once all that stuff, and I think we have to do it. There's no question about it, but let's not kid ourselves. Uh, we're not going to do it as cheap as the Chinese or the Vietnamese or the Cambodians, and that's going to impact inflation, and it goes back to my long-term stagflation uh, thoughts. I, I don't see how it can do anything but. So the so one of the so to get a little more controversial, you know, there there seems to be, um, you know, a a divergent opinion on on the medicine here, right? So you got a supply side. You had, hey, Reagan, you know, cut taxes and that did pretty well. And the feeling is, well, we have, uh, you know, Liz Truss got in a bunch of trouble for this in in England, and then we have. Um, Ideas. Well, let's let's spend more money. We'll spend our way out of this. It seems to me we spent too much money. We got into it, you know, in the first place, and that sort of helped, you know, create a lot of this, this inflation. So, um, just from both of you, start with you, Art. Where where do you think in terms of uh, the medicine we need to take? And it's so politicized that it's just, you know, yeah, kind of leaving politics out of this. I would say that the. The Fed got aggressive and they were the first mover in the pandemic, right? So we saw the Fed take rates down to right. zero, leave them there throughout the course of the pandemic, and they increased the size of their balance sheet through quantitative easing. Yeah. The mistake that the Fed made, I believe, stems from the fact that during the great financial crisis, they had no fiscal policy response. So we went for three years, 2007, eight, and nine, and no real significant changes in fiscal policy to aid in that support of the economy. We have fiscal policy immediately, and that's exactly when the Fed likely should have said, okay, we've already done enough. We've kept rates low. And with every new fiscal policy package, they should have said, we can actually start to normalize rates and back down on, a, on quantitative um, easing and actually keep the balance sheet the size that it's at. I think had that happened, we'd be in a different place right now. And I think that's why the Fed feels so enabled or in, uh, encumbered uh, upon to have to really get to that terminal rate at a faster pace than we've seen in quite some time. So Paul? Well, one of the reasons I, I, I think we're 
going to see the stagflation is, and as I mentioned, I think this recession will be closest, not perfectly close, but closest to the 73-75, is that we had just come off of massive spending of Johnson's Great Society program, the Vietnam War, uh, had a lot of debt. Uh, and uh, and then in you know the Trump administration, we spent six trillion dollars, I mean four trillion dollars on COVID. We had another 1.9 trillion, which I thought was unnecessary during the Biden administration. So we got nearly six trillion dollars uh, of of spending that actually went out into the economy and filtered through the economy, and that is the inflation that we are suffering through at this moment. Uh, I would just make one point because I was working in the uh, Reagan administration back in the early 80s, uh, is that uh, nothing that Liz Truss did, uh, they called it supply side economics, but uh, nothing she did was even comparable to what Reagan did. And Reagan, you, you know, taxes were at a very high rate at that time, but most people uh, who had, who were middle class or above, I contend actually the Reagan tax cuts brought their taxes up because everybody was in all these crazy tax. <laughs> oil, uh, oil things. You know, and everybody, my taxes just shot up uh, in, after the Reagan tax cuts. And, and everyone was surprised that it brought in so much new money. Of course it did. Everybody was paying more taxes except for the lowest kind of level of people who don't pay all that much taxes anyway. Um, all right, any thoughts on the, the final thoughts on the, believe it or not, we're, we're, we're over you know, 20 minutes. I think we can keep keep going on this and we should definitely do it again. Um, but just, you know, thoughts on that, on stagflation, Art, from, from your point of view, do you see the same thing that Paul does there? I don't, and, and, and it's okay to have, you know, us disagree a bit. And if- oh, I'd like you to fight it out, in fact. Yeah, we were actually in DC at the same time and didn't know each other in the Reagan administration. I was down there in 82 as well. But the, um, what I think is interesting is as opposed to st stepping back and saying the post spending on the Vietnam War, the amount of debt we had there, think about the post-World War II timeframe that ushered in a pretty strong economy. We're likely, if I were to pick an analog post-war, I think we're much closer to that. We shifted our manufacturing from manufacturing for war to manufacturing for a better um, U.S. economy that ushered in the baby boomers and a great generation and all of those things. The similarities, I think, are just as close to that time frame, necessarily even more so than necessarily the post-Vietnam War and, and all of the mistakes that were made after that with the Nixon administration and Jerry Ford and, and into the Carter administration. So I think we had a lot of bumps along the way that we might likely won't have this go around. Paul, final uh, stagflation defense? I, I hope uh, Art is right. I don't believe he <laughs> is. Uh, we will see. Uh, we will see. Inflation is going to be much harder. Uh, and I don't think the Fed tools are, uh, are, are up, up to the challenge. Yeah. Hard for them to do it. Okay, guys, thank you. This is particularly edifying. I appreciate uh, you, you being here and um, obviously more to talk about. So we'll, we'll do it again. Thanks. Thanks so much. See ya. Thanks for joining us this week on an industry in transition. Make sure to visit our website, www.advisorhub.com and subscribe to Advisor Hub. It's free and you won't miss any advisor news or events. While you're on site, check out all the podcasts available. Click on the deals pages and resources tab for valuable content or check out the market section with its guru predictions, latest fintech offerings, you name it. Feel free to email Tony Seriani about specific questions we can address on the show. 
He can be reached by email at contact at advisorhub.com. Please note that all requests and questions are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for the next Industry in Transition episode.